with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about China raises pension payments and issues guidelines for basic elderly care system. And we will also take a look at China-Europe freight train service. Who will benefit from it and how? And now let's begin with our top story. China will raise its basic pension payments for retirees in 2023, marking the 19th consecutive annual increase. The average monthly payment for pensioners is set to be lifted by 3.8 percent from the level in the previous year. China has made much efforts to mobilize more resources to cope with an aging society. Official data shows that by the end of 2022, the number of Chinese people aged 60 or above has surpassed 280 million, accounting for nearly 20% of the country's total population. The country has also issued guidelines to build a basic elderly care system by the year 2025. So, for more on Chinese demographic issue and what does it mean for the economy, join us on the line now. Ah Han Hua, an expert on Chinese demography and also president of Beijing Belt and Road Cooperative Community, and also Yan Liang, professor of economics, Villemet University. So, Han Hua, thank you for joining us. And how do you think the recent guidelines could address the specific challenges posed by China's aging population? Oh, thanks for having me. I think an aging society is developed step by step. Hence, we need to solve it in a phased approach. Before the guidelines, there are already some policies and practices focusing on. Elder people and the relevant societal development already, including but not limited to the annual raise of pension for elder people for 19 consecutive years, just as you mentioned, nursing homes building in an accelerated pace in many cities, the universities and learning centers dedicated to retired and elder people. Etc. In addition to this step-by-step approach, we need to solve it with joint efforts. So it is not only a top-down policy and carrying out from central government to lo- local governments,、mm. but horizontally we need non-governmental organizations with expertise, charities. Enterprises with social responsibilities and local communities to join together to help address the problem. So I think that is the significance of the、uh, the. You no, know, the announcement of the guideline, and I also think the guidelines are to address the following, which is one: it is expected to provide basic, inclusive services, including like material assistance, care services, etc. And the second, these are must-have guidelines, and they are the direct response to the challenges the country is facing, and an aging population. I think the watershed was last year when the deaths outnumbered the births in China the very first time since the founding of New China. So this is certainly an alarming call. While we are still a developing country in need of labors, especially young labors, we at the same time is going to tackle the aging problem. So this is a very unique challenge, which needs unique arrangement from both top on top down. And bottom up.、Mm. So Yan, so what do you think are core issues when we cope with an aging society? 
Well, I think the most important question here is how you know China is able to continue to, for example, boost productivity growth. So then we'll be able to provide for more elderly population with the shrinking you know, labor force. So I think that is the overarching uh, kind of objective. Um, but more specifically, I think when it comes to um, the specific arrangements, as um, you know, the previous guest just talked about, is that we need to both provide the basic you know, foundations, right? Some very basic things like medical facilities, um, but also, you know, the, the numbers of medical professionals that are specializing in elderly care is yet another area that we need to specifically work on um, in order to be able to provide that elderly care. So I agree um, that, you know, a lot of these are from the local level and the specific elderly care services will look differently um, at different localities based on the economic and social development levels and also their financial situations. Um, so definitely, I think there there need to be more sort of innovative and really localized responses um, to how to provide the elderly care. So one example is, you know, when it comes to medical facilities um, for some of the cash strapped, you know, provinces or cities, um, there are ways maybe to guide hospitals and some of the hospitals to transform themselves um, into care centers and also to support the non-government organizations in setting up, you know, large scale care centers. So in a way that we try to utilize, you know, the limited resources and really trying to transform and utilize the current re current resources um, to repurpose um, towards, you know, providing elderly care. Mm. And yeah, actually, we know that China has enjoyed a demographic dividend over the past many decades, which has uh, contributed to a large degree to its strong economic growth. And uh, both you and Han Hua mentioned that now the population is declining. So does that mean an end to this advantage? I don't think so. I think, you know, in the early uh, stage of development, you know, labor input is important because that helped to, you know, facilitate the growth in labor intensive manufacturing production and exports. And that was, you know, China's growth pattern in the past, you know, three, four decades. But as we know, you know, China's working population has already peaked in 2012. And so what China um, continues to, you know, rely on, it's not about, you know, that labor intensive growth model, um, but rather to boost productivity growth, right, to have the innovation driven growth. And so it's less about the quantity of the working population, but really it's about the quality It's how China is able to, you know, boost the human capital and also to, you know, um, uh, support the kinds of innovations and uh, productivity growth, and also at the same time, how to reform its system, um, both institutionally, but also, you know, in a way that um, change the entire, I would say, social system in order to provide for the elderly population. So it is a challenge, but I don't think that the so-called population dividend is going to simply disappear. It's going to reshape and reform. Mm. So Han Hua, so earlier you mentioned the low birth rate in China. So why do you think are young couples less willing to raise the children? Well, there are certainly costs involved because it is the rising costs of raising kids from one child to the three children policy encouraged by the government. So it's all about the cost. The cost can be divided into tangible costs, 
which includes but not limited to kindergarten and school tuitions. You know, this costs are increasing on yearly basis, if not, if not, you know, the the monthly or daily basis, and also the daily cost for just one or two children in the family, because now families are kind of adopting. There is this Chinese tradition of put kid-centered, more like a family, especially the core family policy. But now it's becoming, after the one-child policy, it's becoming more apparent that the parents, grandparents, are put more emphasis and costs on the only child in the family. So the daily costs are also increasing. The intangible costs require human resources, like the parents, grandparents, time and efforts. Even the nannies are in lack because the nannies are requiring uh, more uh, salaries. So the intangible costs also requires the resources that the family and the society can provide to the whole process raising mm. children. So I think. Uh, these both the tangible costs and intangible costs composed a really huge burden for the families, especially the young families who are also facing a lot of societal challenges and difficulties. So both the tangible costs and intangible costs comprise of this uh, unwillingness of raising kids in mm. China. So Yan, so to you, what are some of the main reasons for the rising cost of raising kids in China? Well, I think for one reason um, is you know the education costs. Mm -hmm. um, they're very high education costs. Um, so, for example, um, according to um, some of the reports, that uh, you know many of the families are spending. Uh, you know, one third of their annual household income um, to pay for the kids' education. And this is especially, you know, high in the larger cities, right? the first tier, the second tier um, cities. And according to a questionnaire that we're conducting in 2018, for example, in Shanghai, 84% um, of, you know, children were enrolled in extracurriculum uh, classes after school. So like what this previous guest talked about, um, there is the tangible costs, right? That's, you know, one third of annual household income close to, um, you know, 9,000 yuan per year. Um, that is in 2011, dollar, uh, uh, 2011 level. And then the intangible, which is the time that families would have to spend, you know, coaching and helping their kids. Um, but I think in addition to these costs, um, there are other reasons for why the fertility rate um, is low in China, right? Right now it's 1.3 mm. um, children per uh, childbearing aged women. Um, I think one more reason is because the broader opportunities for women. Um, I think that is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, thinking about the holistic development of women, they have other choices. They can pursue career. They can pursue education. So getting married and and bearing kids um, becomes less of a top priority for a lot of the young women. Um, and then one last point, I think the reason for low fertility rate has also to do with, you know, in general, I think there's still the lack of public and social support. So um, things like, you know, we still can improve um, parental leave and other parental policies, 
and also changing the kinds of workplace dynamics. And I think all these are very important uh, for women and their families uh, when they consider, you know, their childbearing, child rearing decisions. Mm. And Han Hua, so in 2021, the government released a decision allowing the couples to have three children and rolling out a series of uh, support measures like uh, tax breaks, uh, some more uh, nurseries and flexible working hours to encourage births. So do these measures look adequate to you in addressing the issue or what else can be done, do you think? In my opinion, um, policy side is on the one side, but there is the execution of these policies, especially in the local governments, and whether there will be the social awareness to help uh, to help carrying out the policies is definitely the other side. So we have the policy. My translation of this policy to have three children is that to encourage young people to start a family plan. So it is not about three children in particular. It's about whether you have the decision and the determination to start your family plan, to get married, to at least have one child first. So this is the core decision or the watershed for the young couples. And then we will have the following up policies. So the young couples need to be totally aware of whether they can have more favorable policies towards them. And that the reality is not that encouraging, especially towards the working moms and the or, or the future working moms, because the tax breaks, many enterprises, especially the small to medium sized enterprises, they would not carry out the tax breaks, even there is the policy there. And about the nurseries, the big cities are okay, but for the smaller sized cities, I don't think the physical conditions are ready to give the space and give the conditions to more nurseries building. And also about the flexible working hours, we all realize that the flexible working hours sounds like a paradise on earth. So I don't think more enterprises, the business entities can provide the flexible working hours to their employees. So policies are there, but the carrying out of the policies, another question. In my opinion, the most direct response to this kind of encouraging policy would be the cash subsidies and also the very immediate policies that can be done. For example, if the if the family has more than one child, how about the second child get a better education, a better school, or some, like we said, a lower condition of entering some top schools in the cities, for example. These can be more than direct subsidies or policies that would be a huge boost to the families to get the income encouragement and the exact um, uh, exact help for from the government and the, from the social organizations the schools the whole systems to help them to mm. give them the signal to see that if we have more than one child and then we can get more uh, favorable policies from the government and mm. more help from the community Hmm. So, yeah, so what do you think should be the, uh, you know, the supportive policy there to encourage births? Well, I very much agree with uh, Han Hua, um, although I still doubt, you know, even with cash incentives, um, it's probably difficult to encourage more childbearing just because, 
you know, the monetary cost um, is not the only consideration. And also, you know, when you look at, for example, Shandong province, um, they do provide, you know, child care subsidies um, about, you know, $86 per month for three years um, for second or third child. And Hangzhou, um, they also provide, you know, one-time cash incentives um, for, you know, $720 for second child and then uh, over $2,000 for a third child. I think still these cash incentives look still minuscule, um, you know, when you consider really the, the enormous cost of, of um, raising a child. So I agree. I think there's no, there, there need to be more um, policies. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think the improvements in you know childcare facilities, childcare opportunities, educational opportunities that ease the pressure and also the costs of education, and also promote that you know workplace equity and all of these I think need to happen in order to you know incentivize more child caring and bearing. Um, but even you know judging from other countries' experiences, you know countries like South Korea, Japan, or or Germany. Um, I think still these uh, supportive policies have only very marginal, um, you know, room to improve fertility. But again, I think when it comes to really trying to continue with, you know, economic development um, and also providing for the elderly, there are other um, sort of um, measures that I think the government needs to pursue at the same time. Um, you know, one example I think is judging from, you know, the, the newly industrialized Asian economies, mm. when they reached you know the one thousand, the ten thousand dollar per capita income. They were still able to achieve, you know, five to six percent of annual productivity growth. So there's no reason that China, now that you know, arrive at this sort of middle income stage, cannot continue to have, you know, five or six percent of productivity growth from this point on. And I think that would definitely help with, you know, the shortage of of labor, right, by improving the productivity. Um, the other thing I think is also, you know, important to think about is, you know, the structural changes in where we put the labor right now, um, you know, China still have uh, a large population in the rural area, uh, which is about 24% of the total work labor force, and that's about 170 million rural workers. Um, and then you compare that with other countries like South Korea, um, their rural population is about 5% of the labor force. And for the United States, that's only 1%. And China, again, is 24%. So I think if we can work on how we reallocate that labor resources um, from the low productivity rural areas to the more urban um, or, you know, revitalize the rural area, um, then I think all these different measures would help to, um, you know, improve, you know, China's sustainable growth and also providing for the population. Mm. And yeah, actually, in the past, we say, you know, we always say demographic dividend we have, and now we say the talent dividend we have. So some also say economically, a shrinking labor force can be offset by technologies, the uh, automation and artificial intelligence. So what do you think? Right, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think I, I agree. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there's still great potential for China to boost its productivity growth. China's productivity level is still lagging very much behind um, from you know the, the advanced countries, especially in the service sector. Um, and again, China still has a large population living in the rural area that could potentially you know uh, increase. Um, their productivity. So I do believe, you know, technological innovations, um, automations, AI, um, and, you know, all these, um, you know, skill-based productivity growth, I think it's going to have 
great potential um, for China to uh, reap this sort of talent dividend. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University, and also Han Hua, an expert on Chinese demography and also president of Beijing Belt and Road Cooperative Community. And after short break, we'll take a look at China-Europe freight train service. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China-Europe freight train service has seen strong growth in the first four months of this year, given the rise of transport capacity and efficiency. Data shows that the number of China-Europe freight trains was up 17% in the period. And in April alone, the number of China-Europe freight train trips increased by one quarter year on year. So Hanhua, actually data shows that uh, the number of China the Euro freight train trips increased a lot so far this year. Tell us more details about the performance of it. Why is it for traffic volumes and trips remain so high? Well, the simple answer is the market is growing and it is growing even stronger after the pandemic. And the demand for Chinese goods ranging from automobiles to daily necessities remains stronger too. And uh, to elaborate a little bit more, after the pandemic, it shows that the globalization is still ongoing and the efficiency for custom clearances from both sides, thanks to the paperless operation and digital management and the data monitoring from both sides, from China and also the receiving countries in Europe, in Central Asian countries, these are the major factors that contribute to the high volumes of the traffic and also the high volumes of the trade. Mm. So, Yan, so can you give us some examples of who would benefit from the service and how? Right. So I think the benefits are really far reaching. Uh, right now, China has opened up a lot more localities to connect with the China-Euro um, trade freight. Um, so right now, I think there are 109 cities in China that have departing freight train um, that connects to 211 cities in 25 European countries. So in other words, all these countries that have the direct connection with this freight train are going to benefit tremendously because um, this is an improved logistics that helps to expand trade. And I agree with what um, 
Penhua was talking about that, you know, with Central Asia, there's a lot of complementarity between these these countries. You know, China imports a lot of agricultural energy, mineral products from these five Central Asian countries. And China also exports a lot of mechanical and electronic products to them. So in other words, there is really um, like what President Xi Jinping said, there's a lot of high level win-win cooperation uh, when China trades with these countries. And definitely this freight trade is a great Great improvement on the logistics um, because when you compare, you know, the freight train with ocean um, uh, cargoes or with air freight, um, you know, the time with the China Euro train is only, you know, one third of the ocean freight uh, time, and then expenses um, for the train freight is uh, the freight train is about one sixth of the air freight. So in other words, this great connectivities and the great efficient logistics would really help to facilitate and expand trade uh, between China and various Asian and European countries. Mm, and what role is the freight train service playing when it comes to stabilizing the global supply chain? Yeah. Right. So this is absolutely essential. Um, like I mentioned earlier, um, there's all these very vibrant trade connections between China and Central Asia and also European countries. And so that really helped to forge a very tight, uh, very efficient global supply chain. And so I think this is really helpful in the sense that it both cut the time that it takes um, for different intermediate goods to be shipped from one country to the other, it also cuts a lot of the cost. And it also adds to the diversity of different transport and logistic means. So all of these will help to stabilize and expand the kinds of global supply chains. And so far, the number of domestic departure cities of this uh, freight train services has reached uh, more than 100. So, yeah, and we see the freight train service particularly brings economic vitality to some inland Chinese cities, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's going beyond that. Um, so we have the connections um, to, for example, Guangzhou. Um, so according to some news reports, some of the logistic agents, they have warehouse in Guangzhou, they have warehouse in Yiwu, they also have, you know, warehouses in the hinterlands. And so all these cities are, you know, in a way, uh, very efficiently connected. And so they're sending, you know, dozens of containers every day mm. through the China Euro um, railway. And by the way, Beijing just hub, the, the Beijing hub just opened last Thursday, and they sent their first train that contains auto parts, apparel, home appliances, and construction materials to Europe. Um, it would take about 18 days for this tray to arrive at Moscow. So these are just some of the great examples of how these kinds of connectivities um, can not only boost China's domestic economy, but also really help to create that shared future, um, that shared economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamat University, and also Han Hua, an expert on Chinese demography and also president of Beijing Belt and Road Cooperative Community. And that's all the time we have for this edition of BIS Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.